In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about one person's journey to give herself permission, in spite of cancer, to enjoy a life-changing trip. But before we get into the story, I want to mention two things. First, have you downloaded your free gift from me yet? I'm talking about the journal companion to this podcast that I created to celebrate our one-year anniversary. It's a free printable that includes writing prompts and inspiration from our first year's episodes with the goal to get you writing your own story. Find this very cool tool at wildfirecommunity.org slash the burn. And I want to tell you about a brand new wildfire theme I have coming up in the new year. This will be our first ever long-term survivor stories issue. The issue will be full of lessons learned from people who have been in cancer land for five or more years. Five or more years ago, they heard those words, you have cancer, for the first time, and everything shifted. But as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, it isn't about that day so much as the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. I want to know, after this big thing happened to you, what did you do with it? What did it teach you about living, loving, grieving? celebrating. The long-term survivor stories will be a rich and dynamic issue, and maybe it's the one you've been waiting for to tell your unique story. The submission deadline for this brand new issue is December 30th. More info on our submission guidelines or small group writing workshops that you can join to find your stories can all be found at wildfirecommunity.org. And don't forget to snag that free journal while you're there. All right, on with the episode. My guest today is Bora Lee, The piece you're about to hear her read comes from our money and cancer issue in which we asked our community how your relationship with money is now in light of a cancer diagnosis. Bora answered this call with an absolutely beautiful essay. She is a wife, mom, former journalist, and attorney, a recovering perfectionist, and a sinner saved by grace. She was first diagnosed at 37 with stage one hormone positive breast cancer, as well as the BRCA2 mutation. Since then, she has experienced multiple local recurrences. Bora started writing as a child, partly from boredom, she says, and also from pain. Writing has been a good friend to her ever since. In her free time, she designs hand-lettered prints, daydreams about opening a coffee shop slash bakehouse someday, clunky dances to K-pop when no one is watching, and would always rather be at a national park or on a long-haul flight to somewhere new. Welcome to The Burn, Bora. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to do this with you, too. 
So you're reading a piece you wrote called A Beggar in a Red Beret. After you read, we will talk. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Bora, I'll let you take it away. A Beggar in a Red Beret. When cancer was cut out of my life, then returned anyway, I booked a trip to Paris. There were lots of things said about this decision. Oh, Delta was having this crazy deal, I told everyone, which was true. Paris is a perfect end of chemo trip. You deserve it, everyone told me, which I tried to believe. What in the world are you doing? An annoying little voice inside me asked, over and over. Because a beggar going to Paris just didn't feel right. 1980-something. I think I was in third grade when those big brown boxes were delivered up our gravel driveway, past the chain-link fence that kept us safe from the stray neighborhood dogs. We never had any packages delivered to us before, so this was big. My parents brought them inside and quickly unwrapped those large, leather-bound books that said Britannica in gold letters across the binding. I sat on our mustard shag carpet and watched as they ran their hands across the covers and flipped through the crisp pages edged in gold. Their eyes squinted at the rows of tiny words they'd never read and marveled at photos of exotic birds and faraway castles. They arranged them proudly and sacredly in our living room, in meticulous order, of course. The gold and leather bricks stood regally next to our Bibles, on mismatched bookshelves that leaned into the support of folded cardboard pieces wedged beneath them. Naturally, I was oblivious to the months of wages these fancy books cost and the priceless hope they held. But as I watched my parents, I knew, without understanding, that I had just witnessed something profound, significant. As I grew older, I continued filing away mental notes on these things my young brain instinctively knew to be significant. The same tired shoes my parents wore day after day while putting their daughters in shiny black Mary Janes. The camps they sent us to every summer, but rarely ever taking trips of their own. House or apartment hopping every few years to stay in the best school districts. Our tired maroon Ford Aerostar in a sea of Lexuses and BMWs in the school parking lot. This collection of childhood notes informed my decisions as an adult. I charted my course and set out on a mission to repay my parents for the sacrifices they made to provide their daughters the best chance for a better life. I wanted to show them that their worn-out shoes and chain-link fences were worth it. It was a mission they knew nothing about. 2019. Hubs and I grabbed our bags from the carousel and wrestled them breathlessly onto the metro, headed towards Les Marais District, our home base for the next few days. We settled into our seats, surrounded by overstuffed suitcases and humans in dark pea coats, puffy jackets. French conversations buzzed warmly around us as our train sped towards the city. Signs of spring were just barely budding outside the windows in high-speed flecks of green, yellow, white. Just weeks ago, I was sitting in a chemo chair. Today, I'm sitting on the Paris Metro. Cue goosebumps and a smile. I fell in love with Paris instantly. 
We sipped lattes in whimsy cafes while fiercely mocking their ridiculously tiny tables and chairs. Snuck in and out of walking tours, meandering down windy cobblestone lanes. Demanded paper-thin slices of shaved comte on everything. Lingered past merchants selling old used books lined up against ancient stone bridges. Savored the sight and smell of baker's chimneys puffing at dawn. Even something about Parisian smokers made me smile. My senses soaked up every ounce, but those ounces grew heavy in my heart. I started to sink on day two. I watched the sunset over the Eiffel Tower as our tour boat drifted gently down the romantically blue Seine, myself just as blue. Our fellow passengers started shifting to the left side of the boat to ready their selfie poses for the magical moment when the Eiffel Tower would float into their shot. We got up and joined in on this obligatory ritual. Hubs angled my iPhone in the air and I stared into my reflection. What the heck are you doing here? I accused myself, grinning with teeth. Snap. You don't deserve Paris. My stomach grumbled in agreement. Snap. As I sat back down, conviction plummeted into my gut like an anchor. Paris is a dream I'm not allowed to have. My mind began to race, thinking of all the ways the money could have been used instead. More vitamin C infusions, helping pay off my ridiculous medical debt, a pot set aside for our son's college fund. I thought of my parents at home caring for our wild child so we could take this trip. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. What do I do now? Guilt of every shape and color pooled into an ocean and dripped down black from the edges of my eyes. I see my parents at least once a year, twice if I'm lucky. Amma fills our home with animated stories, delicious stovetop aromas, and the gentle hum of her voice singing Korean hymns at the cusp of dawn. Appa has a strong, comforting presence I love to be near, and a hundred silly catchphrases he generously tosses around to make us laugh. I love their warm, collective presence in our home. As the years pass, their visits grow more bittersweet. Every meal Amma makes for us in our kitchen while I lay in bed. Every unsolicited bag of overpriced organic groceries Appa brings home from the store. Every secret stash of money they hide in our guest room just before heading out to the airport so we won't refuse their gift. These constant reminders that after all these years, they're still making financial and personal sacrifices for me. It breaks my heart because 40, to me, is definitely some kind of official threshold where the baton is passed and it's my turn now to care for them. It's their turn for rest. But cancer keeps taking all my stuff, you know? My time, my energy, our money, especially our money. My hands stretch before my sweet parents, holding nothing but deficits, buckets filled with holes. Was their suffering and sacrifice worth this? Despite the encyclopedias and private schools and their vacationless summers, 
Cancer has still left their daughter a beggar. Not literally, I know. I'm rich in so many things and so thankful for the blessings I have. But when it comes to time and money, cancer has left me with so little to give and so many, many needs. So, what right does a beggar like me have to indulge in the magic of Paris? Sunday, April 7, 8.47 p.m. Eat well and have lots of fun in Paris, okay? Don't worry about anything or feel bad about the money. We love you. Sunday, April 7, 8.50 p.m. Thank you, Amma. We love you guys so much. And there you have it. Cancer gives this beggar no right to indulge, but love gives this beggar the privilege to. What a beautiful thing. The precious privilege to be walking the streets of Paris, a beggar in a red beret. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful, Laura. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to share it with the wildfire community. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I got a little teary there. <laughs> but same, me too. <laughs> so let's take a quick break here. We'll we'll catch our breath, we'll wipe our tears, and when we come back, we'll dig into your story. Hi, my name is Julie Morgan. I live in San Francisco, California. I was 37 years old at the time of my early stage diagnosis, and I was 42 when I was diagnosed metastatic. I've done multiple wildfire writing workshops with April. She really knows how to get the stories out. She uses wonderful prompts and poems that really speak to our own experiences and gives us a glimpse into what other people are going through. And the group of women that take part in the writing workshops are so supportive and it becomes intimate really quickly because of the atmosphere that April develops for us. Oh, sweet Julie. Thank you so much for the love. I think of you often, my friend. All right. Welcome back, Bora. Thank you again for your beautiful writing. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and dig in. I have been really looking forward to chatting with you about this piece. And as you were reading it now, it's funny, you know, I had written questions I wanted to ask you and this other question came bubbling up listening to you now. And for those of you listening, I have, I've obviously read every piece in wildfire so many times, but it is always so different to hear the author reading it herself. So I had a whole new experience of Bora's piece as she was reading. <laughs> and so Bora, I, I guess I was thinking about this, um, you defining yourself as a beggar in this situation. And it made me think about how cancer casts us in these roles of maybe stripping away our innocence and keeping us children, I guess, in a way. And I guess I want to ask you about that. If in a way your definition of beggar has to do with this prolonged, uh, I don't know if dependent is the right word. You'll tell me if it's the right word. But, you know, staying in this position of child with your parents, like, tell me what you think about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I feel like cancer kind of reached out and pulled out the, 
the little girl that's in me. And I think all of us have some some form of a little child that's trapped in our bodies and it takes something traumatic or big or really hard for that little girl to kind of scream out or not scream. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like a horror story or anything, but, you know, to remind us that that she's there Mm -hmm. um, and she needs help and she's um, not independent. You know, we are, we are, um, like grown young adults, um, but at the same time, um, where I guess, yeah, just that feeling of helplessness and needing our parents, needing our community, needing people who have gone before us, needing doctors, just being so needy um, because we don't have anything um, really to offer ourselves on along this path. And so, yeah, that's that's part of. Um, the whole beggar analogy, but, um, another one is just, just the money. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I feel like as adults, a lot of us have, um, you know, built these dreams based on, um, well, it takes money to build dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just uh, the reality of the world that we live in is everything requires a cost, whether it's money or time. You can't, dreams just don't pop up like magic. Um, and uh, it's, it's. I feel like all of my building blocks for my dreams have kind of been um, flushed down the toilet mm-hmm. with um, cancer, especially it coming back so many times. Um so yeah, it's a it's a humbling experience that I know all of our listeners can relate to. Oh, for sure, definitely. Were you well, okay, let me rephrase. Um I was going to ask you one question, but I just keep having more questions for you come up. <laughs> I guess one question I want to ask you is why why was this the story that came out? Because I'm sure like you said in your piece and and you know just now there are probably a lot of money stories you could have told with regard to money and cancer, right? So many. Mm-hmm. I have so many money stories. And I love that you put out this issue because I think it's really important. And it really, like you said, just kind of gets into like who we are. Um, so anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, <laughs> I love that you said that. But I'm just curious, like why why this story? Why was this the one that needed to to burst out? Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I I wanted to honor my parents in my writing. And, you know, I got emotional reading it because and it, it will always be an emotional thing for me because I um, they have just sacrificed so much of their money and time and all the things um, for me and my sister. And um, so I wanted to to share a little bit a little piece of, of how they've shaped my life. Um, but also it's something that I struggle with almost daily feeling like a beggar, feeling like I have nothing to offer, not just my parents, but you know, my immediate family, my husband, my son, I feel like I just am not a wife. I'm not a mother. I am not a friend. I, I feel um, like I, yeah, like I have nothing to offer on many days when my strength is gone, or, or um, you know, I just don't have words to kind of dialogue with friends. I, I just, yeah, sometimes I feel like an empty shell, and so, uh, you know, I, I struggle with 
with convincing or reminding myself that I, what I have is enough. Um, and the people that love me will accept me despite me feeling like I'm a bucket filled with holes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and maybe this is a really great segue to what I want to ask next, which is, you know, in your bio, you said that it was, um, you started writing as a child and you said it was boredom and pain that brought you to writing. And it sounds like from what you just said, you know, bucket full of holes, I get that so much. It sounds like that's where you write from now, maybe not the boredom part or maybe, um, but tell me how writing fits into your, your survivorship now. Yeah, writing has played, well, first of all, I want to start by saying I have had like a years long writer's block. For, mm. I mean, I would sit and try to get what's inside my heart out on paper and it just won't come. And I know um, you've probably experienced that. And I know a lot of our listeners probably have as well. And uh, your workshops have really helped. I, I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast. Truly, um, it just kind of punctured the, some of the blockage and um, has really helped me to pour out my emotions onto paper and also to kind of discover that little girl that's in me. Um, I don't really feel like I can get to know her without writing. And I feel like in order to heal inside, I need to share her story. I need to um, put words to, you know, what she has been through, what she's feeling, um, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. To all of that. And I appreciate what you said about writer's block, because I think there's a perception out there that that writing is easy for those that are supposed to write and for anyone else for whom writing is hard, then maybe that's a sign that you're not a real writer or you sh shouldn't even bother trying to write. Um, and you know, from being in workshops too, like I can give endless prompts and sometimes they're just, they can't land. There's, it's just mm -hmm. something that's happening and you're working through. And so I just want to say thank you for, for mentioning that, that it's real, um, for all of us. And I think it's just, you just keep trying to hammer away at that and see, see when it can crumble. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's just the fear of what you like being afraid of what might come out. Yeah. And I know some of that was for me, you know, that was, that played a part in my writer's block too, because I just didn't want to dig up those things. Um, but I'm learning that you can't heal from them unless they're brought out. Um, you know, even if you're not conscious of, you know, the pain that's hidden inside you, it's still affecting not just your emotions or your mental health, but your body as well. Like, I truly believe that um, unresolved emotional hurts um, can affect your physical well-being, can cause disease and, mm -hmm. and all that. So it's just so important to uh, face those um and those workshops are just so healing in that way because it 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 gives us an open door, you know, and in a, in a safe place with others to really explore what might be lurking inside us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I think there, I wonder if there's an aspect of, of the workshops that is challenging for you because I, you strike me and I'm going to say this and you tell me if it's wrong, but you strike me as a very careful writer and a writer who goes through a lot of revision and, you know, wants to put out 
perfection or as close to perfection as, as a writer might ever get to. And yet I, when you come to workshops, I invite everyone to share almost immediately these things we've written. And I just wonder how that experience has been for you. The fluidity of, you know, being able to sometimes do endless drafts and sometimes not doing that and kind of how all that healing lands for you, all those places in between. Yeah. So the workshops have surprisingly showed me that some of my best writing, I think, comes out without, like when I'm not worried about how perfect does the sound, like you're just sitting there typing and it's just coming out and I see grammatical errors, but just the, the, the substance of what's coming out is, is really neat. And like, wow, I didn't know that about myself or wow, like that's a really interesting thought I'd like to explore further. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like that perfectionist side in me, um, can really stand in the way, um, of like honesty and, Mm -hmm. and also beauty because I'm trying to, yeah, edit out things that might not be pleasant and and all that. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head (laughs) with me. (laughs) I love that. I love it. Well, so one thing I'm thinking about going back to your story, you know, you, um, you have these beautiful moments of dialogue or, or messages received, you know, from your family wanting you to go on this trip, take this trip, take, I guess that's what it is. Just take for yourself something, you know, and that's a struggle for you and you're seeing the sacrifice and the sacrifice is many years long, you know, at this point too, it's stemming all the way back to childhood, but then there's the cancer years and everything else. And I just wonder as maybe you were experiencing Paris or maybe in the writing of this reflection of it, how it lands for you now as a mom I'm kind of coming out of left field. So I hopefully you're going to be okay with this, but I'm just Mm -hmm. wondering, you know, if you think about your own child feeling like they, um, they can't take something like this kind of trick trip themselves because of your sacrifices, you know, how that would land for you. And if, if revisiting this, I don't know if it, if it's informing your parenting a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it totally has. I actually today, this morning, um, I had a therapy session and I was thinking about that. You know, we're talking about the inner child and, you know, like if if you were a little girl and you were going through this and feeling bad about wh- whatever, what would you say to that little girl? Essentially, you know, telling myself to speak those words of truth to myself. Yep. And I was thinking about that and exactly like what you said, I was thinking about my son and, you know, if he was going through the same thing and just feeling bad about, um, you know, spending any kind of, you know, non-essential, um, like spending money on something that could be deemed as non-essential um, when it would give him so much joy. And it really broke my heart. Mm. And it reminded me that, yeah, so backtracking a little bit, I ever since I was little, I always did a cost value analysis on everything. I don't know how that started. I mean, we didn't grow up with a lot. So I'm sure that it's just kind of something that like organically happened in my brain and in my life. But you know, I never bought anything. Like if my parents would take me to the store and say, you can buy any toy you want, I would just automatically go to the clearance section and pick mm-hmm. something from there. It was, And it wasn't like I was feeling sorry for myself or anything. It's just how I've been wired since a young age. And so, and um, 
like I, I picture my son doing that and thankfully he, he doesn't, but um, if he did, I think that would break my heart, you know, thinking that he only deserves, you know, things that are marked down or, you know, discounted or not as good as others. Um, and that really broke my heart and just, you know, reminded me of the heart of my parents when they give sacrificially that they're doing it out of love. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, and because of this this opportunity to kind of parent yourself or reparent yourself through these experiences. And sometimes we are able to give ourselves that, that true perspective when we look at it through this other lens, you know, of, of say parenting your son and how that would break your heart and yet you're doing it right yourself. Right. Right. So did you reach a place when you were in Paris where you could just receive and just let yourself bask in it? I would like to say 100% (laughs) yes. Um, But, you know, we all have these really strong inner demons and it takes years to undo the way that we think and all those negative voices inside us. So, um, and a thing that I didn't mention in my piece is that um, it was a really hard trip. Mm. It was beautiful, but it was like I cried a lot on that trip And um, I'm going to get a little more personal. Like I was in a very depressive, dark space where I was thinking I don't deserve to live anymore. Mm. Um, And I don't know why Paris brought that out of me. Well, I guess maybe I do have an idea. And it's kind of the things that I wrote about, you know, in in the piece about just not deserving and just being a bucket filled with holes. Um, But yeah, so it wasn't like a 100% like 180. But um, my mom's text just really touched my heart. It came at a moment when I was just really feeling like this was a big, huge mistake. And I could just feel her love in that simple text. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, a turning point, not a 180, but still maybe like a, a 40 degree turn right there, uh, where I, I was able to really embrace and be thankful for the opportunity to you know, be in Paris, which not everybody gets a chance to do. And um, so, yeah, that guilt was lifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things I love about the text and that you included it in your story is she knows you and she wrote exactly what I think you needed to hear right then. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. What a gift to have that in your life. You know, even if you can't be the one who's telling yourself that messaging at that point, to then receive yeah. it from someone else. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I think your goal to write something to honor your parents ha- was met with this piece. I think it's really beautiful. Have you shared it with them or do you think you will? I have not. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I struggle with writing is because once you put words out there into the universe, they're like, that's, it's done. Like mm-hmm. you can't take them back. And again, just that critical voice inside me, like, is it good enough? Does it honor them? You know, um, should I have added different details? Should I have made it less about me and more about them? All those kind of things um, that I'm always feeling like I'm not good enough. Um, And again, I feel like cancer just really like added to that. And I'm working through it and I'm improving. But um, all that to say, I do plan on sharing it with them sometime soon. Um, maybe when I'm confident that I won't get so emotional. (laughs) 
Well, that's the beauty of having it, right? Is now it's there when you're ready and there's no pressure either. You know, if you don't get ready, you know, you reached a place of honoring for yourself within writing it, I think. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. My writer and guest today has been Bora Lee. Her piece was called A Beggar in a Red Beret from our August, September, 2022 issue, Money and Cancer. Bora, are you online? Can people read more of your writing somewhere? Um, I am on Instagram um, at Bora Travels. Um, I never bothered to change my handle because I still love to travel, even though I'm in cancer land. Um, But I haven't been on it very much lately just because I'm dealing with yet another recurrence. But um, but yeah, I try to write there every once in a while. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to to link to you there. And I love that you're you kept the handle the same, of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's cancer can take a lot of things away from me, but it's not going to take away my love or ability to travel. I have determined that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm April Stearns and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 38 issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. Don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, please take a second and leave us a starred review or send me a testimonial recording. It would mean the world to me if you would help me get this podcast out to those who really need it. All right, here is your writing prompt. I want you to write yourself a permission slip. What do you need to grant yourself permission to do? Do you need permission to live the life you deserve regardless of cancer? What are you holding back from experiencing, enjoying, trying? Give yourself permission today. Don't just think it though, really write it because maybe you don't even know what you need permission for yet. Writing can unlock this for you in a really powerful way. So write yourself a permission slip, write it in the third person. If this was me, I would write April Stearns has my permission to blank and I would fill in the blank. So write yourself that permission slip, set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.